Hey, we got Billy Glidden today on this glorious episode, on this nice Harlem night. Billy, how are you feeling? I feel good. You feel, feel good? good, yeah. You don't look good. He's rubbing his eyes. <laughs> He's looks tired. No, tired. Your, your description of the night as uh, glorious... It just made me made me smile. I was I was using fancy words because yeah, I I don't disagree. I mean I usually don't do the intros, so he just he just threw me on here, and I'm just trying to. All right, well, no, you're doing do a great best. job. You're doing really well. This Continue. is one of our special uh, smart podcast. I said podcast, smart podcast. We're I felt like you're the start. best moderator right now for <laughs> this. Uh, Billy's back. I'm really excited about this. This is one of our more successful podcasts. What was the last one? It was called. Uh, Three men talk about the women's march. Just three men in a march. Three men in a march. Nice alliteration. Yeah. Um, Kudos to you on that. Yeah, women were not happy about that one. They didn't seem to. I'm a. We're gonna cut this. No. <laughs> anyway, uh, I was about I think, to be like, I women think, don't get jokes. <laughs> I'm kidding. That's, I think everybody's gonna be happy about this one though. Billy, mm-hmm. how have you been, man? What you been going through? Uh, well, that was in December, right? Yeah, just about. So, oh, the Women's March was January 20th, obviously. Yeah, not the same. 21st, the day after the inauguration. Yes. Yeah, 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 obviously. (laughs) (laughs) Of course. As Evan looks off camera. So, you know, I've just been been doing what I do. I've been following the things happening in the world and uh, working in New York City at a nonprofit. Same job as I had last time I was here. Same Billy Glidden, we remember. Same Billy Glidden, you remember for the most part. And I've <laughs> just been uh, continuing to observe and think. And I, uh, I like coming. I've been trying to come up here again mm-hmm. because you guys help me think better. And uh, I want to think better. So Billy Glidden, the thinker. Yeah. A lot of times with thinking, you also do a lot about a lot of uh, writing as well. Yeah. You had any like interesting conversations with people that might be reading your articles or? Um, well, I, the most recent thing I put up was about John McCain. Did you read that one? I saw that one. You didn't. You clicked like I, on I, it. But you, it's on one of my tabs, actually. That right. That's so in the reading, I mean, the reading I, log. I, my my friend um, Brenna edits this website called The Feed, and she asked me if I would um, contribute. Shout out to Brenna. Yeah. Brenna, yeah. Some political. Uh, if I would contribute some political observations on a weekly basis, so. That forces me to to think in ways that I might not otherwise, because when I sit down to actually type something out, I need to um, clarify my own thinking in a way that when I'm just walking through life, having thoughts, thinking, oh, I want to talk to Evan and Evan about this. I don't have to, you know, there's not as much clarity. So it's been a good exercise for me. Um, I, the first piece I wrote was about the Obamacare repeal um, back in March when the House first voted on that. Oh, okay. And tying it to a, uh, a history that is shaped by race, like everything else in American history. Mm-hmm. Um, the uh, hostility to universal health care um, being very much rooted in a hostility to civil rights. And I basically argued that opposition to Obamacare had... Um, uh, not if if not if it wasn't explicitly or overtly racist, it it had echoes of such um, that was inseparable from my understanding of what was happening. And uh, since then, I've written about a few other top. I wrote about Mayor Landro in New Orleans taking mm-hmm. down the Confederate monuments. Um, I was very happy to see that, and uh, I, I I wrote an analysis of his speech. Um, 
in, sort of in conversation with Brian Stevenson's idea of a politics of redemption. Um, so that was one thing. And that, that actually got the, the most feedback because I think the way that um, Brenna advertised the piece, for some reason, like a ton of people in New Orleans read it and wrote these, like, these very angry comments about how Landro is scum and I'm scum. <laughs> That's crazy. Yeah. Bucket yeah. list. I, 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 that had never happened to me before. Been called a scum? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure I have. But, uh, but I mean, that's one of the new. <laughs> that's one of the pieces of advice that people give you, right? Never read the comments. Yeah, yeah, but it's like it's like walking by a mirror, like the 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 pull. <laughs> I see to, to, to look at it, right? It's like they're talking about me. Yeah. Did, did you engage? <laughs> I like him. Did you like respond to anybody? Or no, no, I I just let them respond. Um, not a lot of the comments felt. Um, all that responsive to what I actually said. Mm. Um, but, but like you were talking about off air, um, people feel very morally aligned with a certain understanding of themselves and their history. So taking down a statue of Robert E. Lee, if you've grown up thinking certain things about what Robert E. Lee means, and then somebody comes along and says, actually your belief in that is very wrong and Robert E. Lee is a wicked person that we shouldn't celebrate. Um, the reaction, I think, predictably is one of hostility. Like, oh, my identity in this is threatened. Yeah, and that kind of gets back to the conversation we, w- we were having off air and that how, how do you communicate to somebody that their entire worldview is not only slightly off, it's, it's actually harmful. You know, you have those type of conversations with people in every type of environment, whether it's your workplace or on the street at, at a party, uh, the, the family conversations about politics where people arrive at these type of conclusions and ideas regarding popular events or statues or you know, conversations about uh, identity politics. We were also talking about that off air and Figuring out ways to communicate to them that you are hurting other people because you you perpetuate this idea, mm-hmm. I think it might be one of the toughest tasks intellectually of like our day. How do you deal with that? I don't. So <laughs> initially I used to be personally very <clears throat> argumentative. Like I felt like I still think I have this kind of confidence about me where I feel like if I could sit down with somebody individually, I, I, could, sh- I could change their mind. Van but, Jones. Huh? The Van Jones method. Like a Van Jones, exactly. Like I'm confident if I sit down and talk with you about this one event, whether it's this individual police shooting, whether it's, uh, uh, whatever, it's Khalif Browder and his treatment, whatever the situation might be, I'm confident that... I have enough facts and enough research backing that I could shift your view on this one topic. The issue for me becomes that I could shift your view on this one topic, but I can't change the larger morality worldview that's that that's influencing your thought process. And that they're invested in actively. Exactly. Yeah. They're invested in believing a certain version of things. That, exactly. That justifies their own place in the world. Exactly. And yeah. <clears throat> I, don't, I think everybody's had that one conversation where 
they kind of realize it, it's tough, but you realize that your friend, you know, might, might be racist. They might be sexist. They might be an Islamophobe and you, you still might like them as an individual, but you realize that I'm struggling to find the words to engage and make them see that they're, they're hurting other people. I, I love this person, but they, their mindset is hurting a lot of people. And dealing with that, I think, is, like I said, one of the, one of the toughest things. Oh, you guys are both looking at me for a response right now? Yeah. yeah. We'll cut uh, that part. <laughs> well, no, what, what you said was interesting is that uh, I feel like a lot of the people who are invested in that type of oppression in many respects will lend it to, like, subconsciously participating in these things. I don't know how to like how you would be able to tell someone like, hey, this is you actually actively doing this. I can't even think of an example in my head of what when my friends would be doing that. Um, but I don't know. Just to touch upon what you kind of were saying is that I usually just come home and complain to you about this and not <laughs> say it when I know when I let people say wild shit. Um, Do you know. encounter that a lot? People saying wild shit. Well, the funny thing is the other day I was saying like sometimes like even, you know, with this Colin Kaepernick thing, that's the thing that I guess I relate to the most just because of sports or whatever. Like I'll say something like how how weird is it that like, you know, he's not playing and I'll kind of say it, just throw it out there even though I know the answer. I hope they know the answer. And then it's just like, no, nope, they just won't let it slide. They'll end up saying something totally, you know, white. Um, you're talking about adversarial. white people. Yeah. Mostly. I don't think black people are <laughs> hating on Colin Kaepernick too much, right. except for the ones, I don't know, being interviewed by Fox Sports. But uh <laughs> yeah i don't know it just it it seems like it's such a like it's such an attack on what you guys have said or categorized as like their investment in this for so long and i guess i don't know i have no idea yeah i yeah yeah and I, i'm finding that more and more the people that assume that there's a there's an order of the universe that is natural in which they are the beneficiaries of xyz whatever it is um let me try to rephrase that. Um, yeah, so if the people that I that I encounter most uh, around this healthcare debate that's happening now, or around racial stuff, who who think that there's just a certain way of things that has always been and always will be, and it's really wrong to try to meddle with it or, or to perpetuate an attitude of, of victimhood among the black community and. You know, the black people generally just need to work harder yeah. and then they'll they'll achieve. It's always people that are the most protected by the system as it exists. It's people that, in my experience, there might be some people that uh, I'm sure. I mean, there are plenty of Trump voters who don't actually benefit all that much and they don't even realize it. But people I've been encountering with with some regularity of late, um, yeah, they, they are not people that they, they worry about their, their little brother getting stopped by the police. And they're not people who um, know what it's like to think about maybe going bankrupt if, they're, if their loved one gets sick. Mm -hmm. So I find that interesting. Like where the, the, your position in the system and your attitude about it unless you've had some kind of come to Jesus moment where there's been a sort of conversion of your heart where you understand that your fate is uh, tied up with another person's and that you're not actually free and that you're not actually fulfilled by, by this stuff. Um, it's really hard to get people to adjust that. 
can can I just this is a little aside? Just I thought it was interesting. You just said this. Uh, like a couple of weeks ago, I was driving up with a white girl, white woman, in her car. We're driving up to the Adirondacks, and I forget whatever we were talking about. But at some point, she had said, like, you know, I'm actually a little nervous driving today. And she wouldn't explicitly say it was because I was in the car, but I th- I think the same thing every time. Every time I'm in the car, uh, I'm kind of like I'm a black person in the car. I'm just I'm just worried, and. You know, you were just talking about like your fates being tied to each other and sometimes you don't know, but it was just a good like example of that. But, uh, you know, she was saying, like, oh, you know, I usually drive a different car. I'm driving my parents' car. It's more expensive. And like, she's, she's a very nice person, totally, you know, quote unquote woke or whatever. But like, it was interesting that even at that time she had realized like, yes, I'm with a black person right now. This is a little different than me doing this normally. Right. She didn't explicitly say it, you know, whatever. Right. I, I wrote I wrote a, I wrote about this um, it, over a year ago now, I think. I wrote about being at a Black Lives Matter march and my experience of being there as a white person. And I went there. I forget which uh, killing was in the news. Um, it must have been after uh, Philando Castile and Alton Sterling. And I, I went to a march. It was actually in Harlem. And there were other white people there, but I was one of a few. And I realized that, um, so we gathered in a park and the police were, were playing a loud speaker that, that played the same message on a continuous loop. And it was saying like, it was conveying the message that we'd be arrested if we persisted in marching. And I'm looking around at the police and they look like people I grew up with uh, in, 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 my, in my Irish Catholic community and and there was this part of me that wanted to go up to them and be like could you let me know when you plan to start arresting people like like they were they were my they were my people a little bit <laughs> like funny. like or i walked by one and i i thought to like give him a pat on the back and ask him like if things were going okay but then i realized that to him in that moment like i've become vulnerable by my association with this march and it was the only time in my life, other than times when I was drinking underage, that I felt unsafe. I actually, I got a glimpse into that. Like, okay, they're not actually here to make me feel safe. And it's because of my, my proximity to and my affiliation and solidarity with this thing that they find objectionable and with people that are, are, are adversarial to them. Like the, the speakers were saying hostile things about the NYPD. But that was a moment where, it's to your point, like my identity as a white person, but my association with a, a movement that, that uh, a movement for black life and black liberation made me feel threatened, which just showed me how astonished, like I was astonished by that. I went home and I had to write it all out because I couldn't believe that like, that that even in this moment of me like being a woke white guy i'm at the march i'm still like going through my head with these gymnastics of what my identity is and how i'm relating to it and thinking that oh i can reason with these folks how many how many of the black marchers there do you think had that same thought like oh i can go reason with this officer they probably didn't yeah which is why I'm very interested, like you said, the you looked at the police officers and you saw somebody like this person looks like they're from where I'm from. Like I, I recognize their features. I recognize, you know, their how how they were raised. What do you think was different between like the police officer maybe 
and and yourself in terms of like what what you guys maybe maybe read, what you guys engaged with. Like how do, how do you think you arrived at this position where you perhaps have read more James Baldwin than the majority of people that I know? You know, you study uh, Kingian philosophy more than the majority of people that I know, but also from this uh, well-off white background. Right. So not exactly well-off, but but white. Okay. Interesting. Def- yeah. Not exactly well-off. Um, Holyoke is not a wealthy city, but I have no issue with owning that, that my experience has been a privileged one. Um, I don't know how to answer that really in terms of like what I was exposed to and why... Um, why I became obsessed with understanding these issues the way I I have, other than there was something very freeing for me about um, figuring out why things look the way they look and are the way they are. Um, Is that okay? Just talk. We can cut that. No, I'm good. Because you you looked disturbed. Okay. Um, Yeah, I mean... I really wanted to know what was underneath a lot of the assumptions that I grew up with. And reading somebody like James Baldwin was a liberating thing. I felt, I felt like I was living closer to reality and that felt good to me. That I didn't have to walk around mystified by what was going on in the country. That there was actually a way of understanding it that would not only help me analytically but help me it, it help me be in better touch with my own humanity so for whatever reason that was always very important to me i don't know exactly why i know that my white parents and my grandmother who helped raise me were um very tolerant and and uh progressive democrat types i mean my dad had had some of his he's been dead a little while but he's he had his maybe some issues around race that are reflective of his um the time in which he grew up which was the 40s and 50s um but but i grew up invested in politics and in history and in understanding um, the lives people led, and and I had instilled in me a belief in the value of each and every life. So I, I wasn't so invested in an idea of myself as superior. I was much more, and, 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 and a, a point of disconnect that I experience a lot when I talk to other white people is this investment in like, oh, I achieved what I did because I worked so hard or whatever. Like, I don't really think of my reality in that sort of way. Uh, okay, I think, like I'm like I'm virtuous in some way. I don't really think of myself that way, which is interesting because yeah. I think there's been a larger conversation in around kind of like allies in general mm-hmm. in in every type of uh, you know conversation, but in terms of like white allies in particular, because that's the one I've been following most more uh, most closely. There is kind of there this investment in being or feeling morally superior. Um, I know there was the, that kind of conversation arose when, uh, Bill Maher had his debacle on his TV show where he said the N word and he brought, he brought, he brought, uh, Michael Eric Dyson, he brought Ice Cube, uh, a bunch of people basically to, to talk to him, 
But at the end of the day, Bill Maher and a lot of Bill Maher's fans are saying, listen, you might have made a mistake, but he's one of the good guys. And Bill Maher kind of echoed that. Like, listen, I'm not the person that you need to be talking to about this. Like, I'm, I'm one of the good guys. Like, I am still uh, a positive force in whatever conversation or movement that we're having. Sounds like what I say. When I yeah, make a right. bad joke. <laughs> anyway, go ahead. <laughs> Sorry. No, that, that's interesting, though, because it seems for even, even among white allies, the, the philosophy that underlies that is still so distinct. Like you could still have that kind of commitment to superiority, even in committing yourself to less privileged people. I've always thought that was like really interesting. It's a good point. Yeah, for sure. I got nothing. I was gonna wait for you to answer, <laughs> and then I was gonna like be like, "Oh, there's my opinion." Go ahead. <laughs> That's a good point. I think I think a certain uh, like self interest, selfishness, desire to be seen w- well by your fellows is. I mean, I I don't know this, but it seems pretty innately human, and I, that probably exists across racial groups. It, I mean, I'm sure it does, but uh, like the I, I think we're living in an interesting moment where and I am certainly guilty of this, perhaps, um, that that by performing how uh, enlightened you are, by, by performing your wokeness, so to speak, you are actually instead of helping address conditions that that create the problems or really putting yourself on the line in the service of justice you're just sort of calling attention to the fact that you're really smart and knowledgeable very true yeah very true and i'm guilty of that no i feel like if you're making a like something if you're making a point to demonstrate how enlightened you are in less than like 200 words you're probably doing that but i feel like if you like (laughs) work on it i don't know but I think you're talking about me. No, I was just no. saying in general. But I feel like you don't do that. Okay. Yeah, I'm just I'm saying. I'm just saying I'm human. human. So. <laughs> you ask me about um, turning points in my thinking that that led to the way that I try to engage with the world. And I don't, I don't approach these things like I have answers. And I think sometimes I'm misunderstood in that respect. When I engage with other white people, it's like, oh, Billy thinks he knows things. It's really, I'm just very curious. And I've been that way for a long time. And, and it, it has to do with really my own, um, my, my own ability to live within my own skin comfortably, like, like a, with, with some semblance of morality. Um, in my life, um, it, it really authentically in touch with my own, own humanity in a way that isn't um, just built on falsehood. Like, I'm the, like my life turned out this way because there's something virtuous about me that wasn't virtuous about Trayvon Martin. And I know that that's not true. Um, I think one moment in my life that really shook me up was when Hurricane Katrina happened and I was I was um, I was in middle school and I was watching that play out and it occurred to me at that moment that there were people that lived in this country that that wh- whose reality of America was completely different from my own there were people um, who were not enough of a priority um, in the minds of 
enough people in, in, in the minds of the people with power in the country that such that people were left on rooftops for days. And I remember watching that as a kid and actually crying and wanting to understand why the fuck this was allowed to happen. And I couldn't separate that the person on the rooftop from me. I was incapable of doing that, right? That person is me born somewhere else to different parents with different skin in a system that affects them differently, but they're me. And the idea that somehow these things don't affect me because of where by accident I happen to be born, I, I could never live comfortably with that understanding. And then what comes with that is a desire to understand how things got to be the way they got and what might be done about it. The other thing about me that I think has really pushed me in this way is, is I've had my own struggles in my life. I was talking before we got on the air about the fact that I stopped drinking alcohol. Um, I'm a guy that's driven drunk. I'm a guy that has mouthed off to police. I'm a guy that has behaved in all sorts of reckless and stupid ways in my life in a forgiving environment where that was okay, right? And whenever an unarmed black kid gets killed, um, I, and Trayvon Martin was an awakening moment for me like I think it was for a lot of people. Uh, we're living in the era of a black president and we're coming up against the limitations of that in the form of this teenage kid being profiled and killed and nothing being done about it. I look at that kid and I look at the way that he gets talked about, right? I met, I met Trayvon's parents a few months ago at a book signing and I, I got to... Sweet picture. Yeah. Sweet moment. Sweet moment. Sweet picture afterwards. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and you know, that kid um, wasn't angelic, right? That was the point that we were to take away that he was smoking pot that night and you know maybe he started punching zimmerman and you know he some of his tweets were vulgar and uh look if that kid if that kid wasn't angelic then i certainly am not angelic and have not been but the fact that i am not angelic did not preclude the possibility that I could grow up to understand life in a different way, to have to, to, to convert in myself to a better, more, uh, more thoughtful, more reflective, fuller uh, human being. I got to do that. That was a privilege that I got to have. And I think over the past few years of um, living that out, um, coming into touch with the, the, my own fallibility, the fragility of my life. I had deaths in my family. Um, I couldn't live in myth. I couldn't live in the myth of my own virtuousness. I had to live as a human being, and that comes with um, some imperatives, right? So I think, I think these turning point moments in my life shook me enough that that I really, really wanted to figure out why it was that things were a certain way and why it was that people thought things about themselves and about each other that, that weren't true. And I'm sure today there are things that I think about me and about others that aren't true, but I'm not going to stop trying to figure that out.
Billy Glidden, thank you for coming through. Always a pleasure. I got to think of advice now. A little bit of advice. Anything you got? Oh, he's saying, oh, no, damn it. Just get no, off I the No, I thought it was a good ending. It was a good ending. Oh. <laughs> it was like just, you know, tags. You said be honest. Isn't that advice? That's I just wanted to do this in one take. I just I thought it was, I thought it was good. Okay. Okay. Cool.